Okay, so this morning we're continuing our series in Galatians, and um, let's go right into it. Let's go into the passage, and then um, we'll break it down from there, but if you could put up um, our passage. Thank you, Letha. Okay, so this morning we're in Galatians 3, um, and we're just seven, it's a pretty short passage, 15 to 22, um, but there is a lot in here. So what I'd like to do is just read through it whole thing so we get the context and then we'll go back and we'll start to to build something in it so um i'm just going to read this uh starting in verse 15 brothers and sisters let me take an example from everyday life just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established so it is in this case the promises were spoken to abraham and to his seed Scripture does not say into seeds, meaning many people, but to and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God and his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness certainly would have come by the law. And then our last verse, but scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, so um, to take a step back, um, as we've been working through Galatians together the last handful of weeks, um, we learned that Paul, um, who at one time um, was vehemently opposed to Christ, encountered Christ um, on the road to Damascus, and he was uh, radically transformed, became a follower of Christ, and began to preach the good news of Jesus to not only the Jews, but the Gentiles. Um, and at one point, um, he encountered these people um, who he is writing to now, and shared the good news, and a church was established there, part of the body of Christ, founded on the good news of Jesus, um, founded on the grace of God, and at some point um, in this church's history, as they were as they were developing and growing, word reached Paul's ears that um, something ugly and religious had begun to creep back into the theology of this church. It was no longer just Jesus, but there was also um, some elements of the law being added back into this. That you must fulfill these things in order to receive the promise of Jesus. Um, and so Paul's writing this letter to address that, and we've seen that over the last handful of weeks. Um, and so today, Paul continues his argument, um, establishing, reestablishing, really, the good news of Jesus as the only means, the only way for salvation. Um, and so and when we read this passage, um, you can almost hear that Paul is already ready for the rebuttal argument, maybe from, from the, some of the folks in this church. As Paul is saying, hold on a second, in some of these previous passages, you're now preaching things like 
salvation can come through circumcision or it comes through this or it comes through that. He's saying, no, that's not the way that it works. It comes through Jesus alone. He can almost probably anticipate the argument coming back from them. Yeah, but there's still this thing called the law and it still says to do this. And so we believe that this is also, you know, um, a supplemental part of salvation. You can almost hear that he's preparing for that. And so he just wants to address that right here up front. And so if we could go back to verse 15, um, we see Paul establishing his argument in this portion of the passage right here. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Okay, so to understand what he's saying here, we have to understand what he means by um, this covenant. And so if you look back um, in scripture, all the way back to the first book in the Bible in Genesis, um, we see that there's this character Abraham, formerly known as Abram. And um, if you read through Genesis, particularly like uh, the earlier part of Genesis, like 10 and through like 20 something, you will see this, um, this relationship with God and with Abraham. And um, this promise, this covenant that, that Paul is referring to, um, oh, you can go back to, actually, you can just leave it there. That's fine. <laughs> um, that's perfect. Um, we see that God establishes a promise with Abraham. Um, and so, could you go to the one in... Um, Actually, I think I just have it here. I'm going to just read it to you. So Genesis 15, um, this is where we see uh, the beginning of this. It says, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who inherit my estate is I don't know that person's name, someone. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him and said, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up to the sky and count the stars, and indeed, if you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then it says, Abraham believed God and it would be credit to him as righteousness. And we'll come back to that. Could you go to the passage in Genesis 17? Okay, so then God says this to Abraham. I will establish my covenant between you and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be God to you and to your descendants after you. So this promise and this covenant that Paul is referring to in our passage today is this promise that God established with Abraham all those years back before that. And his promise was to be your God and to be the God of all of your descendants after you. And so here's what happened. So we have this promise was given to Abraham, right? And it says that Abraham received this promise by faith. It was credited him as righteousness. We'll get into that later. Um, Then sometime later, um, this law was given. um, And... Well, let's get to that in a minute. (laughs) I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit here. Um, Okay, so looking at the promise, the promise itself was established by God out of his love for Abraham. God simply loved his people and wanted to be their God, and he established that. Here's the crazy thing is, though, um, 
if we know the, the first story of creation, we know that God created man and placed him in the Garden of Eden, right? And had communion with man. And then that communion was broken on man's behalf. We, we sinned, right? And sin and, and God can't mix. And so the relationship, the communion with God and with his people was broken, right? And so that was kind of it. Like man was removed from the garden, relationship, communion was broken. And if God wasn't who he is, that really would have been the end of relationship with God. Um, but God comes out of nowhere and establishes this promise with Abraham that I'm going to be your God anyway. And that's just like extremely radical. It could never have been on behalf of something Abraham did after sin entered our nature, there was nothing that we could do to call back God back to us and earn some sort of covenant promise with him, um, let alone something as radical as that, that he will be your God, your father, your protector, your, care, your, your caretaker. Um, he will provide your every need. That's a promise that God just came out of nowhere and gave to Abraham and to his people, to his descendants, who is you and I as well. Um, we are the beneficiaries of that promise. So we have to see that this promise wasn't established in some sort of place where Abraham earned it. Um, it wasn't established on good works or on merit. It was established on one thing. It was the love of God that was freely given. Um, and then it says that Abraham received this promise by faith. So it was established in love and it was received by faith. Um, and under this promise, we're given a new name. Um, Abraham, Abram went to Abraham when this promise was established. God gave him a new name under his love. Um, this was a covenant given from God to his people, and you cannot add on to a covenant. So this promise that God gave was simply that I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And there was nothing that could be added on to or changed or edited about this covenant. It was established. Um, and if you think about it like in our terms of our lives, like think about a marriage covenant, right? So like Carol and I got married and we stood in front of each other and declared, you know, I will love you in sickness and in health for richer or poorer, blah, 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 till death to us part, right? That's something that I chose to declare to Caroline. That's something that Caroline chose to give to me too. It wasn't like Caroline said to me these things and I said, well, okay, because of that, then I'll also do it. It's like we each gave each other this promise, right? That we are going to love one another until death do us part. So, I can't just like, you know, let's say we turn 50 and Caroline comes to me and she's like, hey, honey, so, you know, I've been thinking about that covenant that we made, you know, back on the altar. And, you know, <laughs> you're a little older now and you're not in the same shape you were then. Um, you know, there's some health issues kicking in and, um, you know, we're, we're not exactly maybe in the financial place that you know, you told us we'd be in by the time we got to this age. And I don't know, it just kind of got me thinking, like, I think I'm going to like, I think, I think I'm going to say this. I still want to be with you. I still want this to work out. But here's like a list of some things I need you to really get together. Or I'm thinking about leaving. <laughs> um, like, she can't just come and just change the terms of the covenant because 
like I'm not living up to her, you know, maybe what she had dreamed I'd be or, or whatever. It doesn't matter. She can't just come and change the terms of that covenant. She made that covenant with me, right? She gave that promise to me. I received it and I can live in it. And the same with how I gave that to her. And so um, obviously I'm talking about one human to another. I'm not talking about God to, to us. Um, you know, but, but that, that just kind of like gives us a little bit of a picture of what I'm talking about. God gave Abraham a promise, and that promise wasn't going to be changed or altered or edited. Um, and the reason that this is really important, um, if we can move ahead in our passage um, to verse, um, go ahead and go to 17. Thank you. Okay, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Go ahead to the next verse. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So go back to 17. Thank you. I appreciate all the jumping back and forth. Okay, so here's the point Paul is making. Yes, God did give his people this law, and we're going to get into this law here as we go along. But before we even approach the law, before we even talk about it and how Christ fulfilled it, we have to know that the promise that God gave to Abraham is still the promise that's being fulfilled today through Jesus. And the law did not establish something new. It didn't change the covenant. It didn't re rewrite the covenant. It didn't establish some new way of, of approaching God. God did not change in the giving of the law. The same God that loved us fiercely, that freely gave his promise of love to us, is the same God that gave us the love. So, gave us the law. So in the law, we have to see the love of God, and we will get into that. But that is so critical. Um, and so I think what Paul's realizing is that um, if we do not keep the law in the context of the promise, then the law can easily become this system of merit, right? Earning God's favor, earning his love, and that is not who God is, right? So we have to see that. The law does not rewrite the conditions of the promise, um, so the law didn't replace God's covenant with Abraham as a new system for earning favor. Um, the law doesn't exchange the grace that God gave us for self-righteousness. Um, we must see the same God gave us the promise through Abraham, the same God gave us the law, and the same God sent Jesus to the cross to bring us close. God doesn't change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, so, um, with God's grace, where did the promise come from? Um, communion with God. Okay, I already went through that. Um, <laughs> all right, let's move ahead to verse 19. One more. Thank you. Why then was the law given at all? So now we're getting into the law. So the law is, so here, here's, okay. Here's what I don't want to skip past in this. Today's message is about the promise of God. It is about his promise. It's always, I had it on there like the little title screen said the promise. I think I would change it now to it's always, it's always about the promise. Um, or the promise is always the promise, whatever you want to call it. It is all about the promise of Jesus. It is all about that. But what I don't want to do is skirt past the role that the law plays in this. Um, because I think what can happen depending on what background we come from, maybe we come from a certain church background or we never grew up in church, 
we can have a complicated relationship with the law that exists in the Old Testament. It is a part of Scripture. It is a large part of Scripture, and it is something that God gave, and so it must have purpose and meaning and significance, you know, even post-Jesus coming and fulfilling the law. And I think sometimes we can either, A, not know anything about the law, right? I know nothing about that. That's the Old Testament. I just, you know, read Jesus, and, and that's it. And obviously, all of Scripture is about Jesus. The law we will see is about, it, it, it leads to Jesus. Um, but I think that's one thing. We might not know it at all, or we read it, and we just kind of have to do one of two things with it. Either reject it because it seems crazy, or just choose to, like, ignore it, right? Because, like, we're just in this, we're in the new covenant now. We can just kind of let that pass. Um, and I think if we do that, then we are in danger of, a, missing out on the wholeness of God's love and his goodness, or B, falling into the same trap that the people in this church did too. Um, because if we don't understand what the law was for, I think we are subject to fall into this trap of going back in and earning God's grace and his favor or trying to do that. Um, so it's really important that we lean into the law today. So Paul's saying, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. So point blank, Paul says the law was given because of sin. And so if we look at that, I think there are some different angles that we can take with that. So we sin, we fall short of God's glory. And somewhere along the way there, the law was established in response to that. Um, and so, but I don't think it's just as, as cut and clear as, um, as, you know, one reason or another. Um, so God gave this law to his people. And if you read it, um, it's just a list of commands. These are the things that you do, and these are the things that you don't do. And to be clear, until Jesus came, the way that you would follow the Lord was to be obedient to these commands. You would read them, you would study them, you would know them, you would follow them, you would commit your life to following these commands. Um, because behind these commands was the loving God that you wanted communion with. Um, and so these commands could never, well, we'll get to that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, all right, so the law was given because of sin. I don't think that the law was just given so that we would know right from wrong. I don't think that's the only reason that the law was given. Um, Paul talks about um, the law being written on our hearts. There's something in us as humans that we kind of know what's right and wrong. So the law does kind of give us the specifics, right, or gave the people the specifics. The commands of God always give us the specifics of what's right and wrong. But I don't think that was the only reason that the law was given. I don't think it was just given so that we could earn God's favor um, because we all fall short of God's glory. So that could not be the intent of the law from God's behalf to us because we were never going to live up to that standard. Um, sin meant that the law needed to be perfectly fulfilled. And so here's what I think. The law was given because of sin and it was given by God in anticipation of Jesus coming to fulfill it for us. So let's go ahead and move to verse 21, please. Okay, so we have to acknowledge this. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness certainly would have come by the law. So, you can see how the law might have seemed like it opposed God's promises. If God's promise was to just show up to Abraham and say, 
I will be your God, and I will be the God of all of the descendants that come after you. Um, and then he offers this law by which we, a code by which you must live to maintain relationship with God. You can see um, how those two things might operate in um, opposition to one another, right? One is like freely receiving a promise, and another might seem like it's like earning God's favor and his love. Um, And so Paul is just establishing absolutely not. That is not the case. The law is not opposed to the promises of God. For if the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness certainly would have come by the law. So we have to acknowledge that the law in and of itself, by itself, out of the context of the love-filled promise of God, the, the law brings death to us. The wages of sin is death, um, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Um, but here's what we need to see. And I think sometimes we can think this way about the law. The law did become the, the incriminating evidence against us, but the law is not what brought death to us. It was our sin. The law is holy. The law is perfect. The law is the, the representation of God. It isn't broken in the sense that it pointed a gun at us and shot us. <laughs> the law is simply the standard of God's holiness, and when we stand up next to that standard, we fall grossly short of it. Um, so there's like a, an analogy. It was in a book Caroline's reading right now, and uh, she just like shared it with me this week, and it was really good. So I think it's a good way of thinking about this. So have you ever like tried on some clothes on an outfit like at the store or something? Or no, let's just do this at home. If you've ever like tried on an outfit and you felt like from this angle, you feel like this is kind of like a good outfit, like you like it, right? And then you go to check it in the mirror, and it just, when you're looking at it like this, it just doesn't work. Okay, right? You just, you want that thing to work. Like the, I'm trying some high top shoes today with the jeans tucked into it. From here, it looks dope. When I look in the mirror, I just, I look like a punk, right? Or, you know, maybe you're not in the best shape of your life and you try on an outfit and you really think it's like a really great sweater. It's going to look so good for fall. And it's just like, it's just not looking good on me right now. Everyone feel, okay. So here's, this is, this is what we experience with the law. When we look in the mirror, and we see something that we don't like, and it's ugly maybe, or it feels ugly to us, it doesn't work, it's, something's off with it, it's not good. Okay, the mirror is the law. There's nothing wrong with the mirror. The mirror's not lying to us. The mirror's not incriminating us. The mirror is simply the mirror showing us reality, okay? That's what the law does. The law shows me when I look at it, I, this is not working. This is not okay. There's something broken here. Um, and so when I look at the law and I see it and I see I fall short of this glorious standard, um, that is the reality. But the law itself is holy. It's what the law, it's us that is unholy. It is us. The wages of sin is death. And we have to see that because it can be easy to look at the law and say, poo-poo on that. That brings death. That's bullcrap. I just want Jesus, Right? But that's not getting a holistic view of God's love. The law is holy, right? And if I'm not going to stand in front of that mirror and look great and live up to that standard, then somebody has to in my place, and that's Jesus. So we have to see that. Um, 
Only a perfectly holy being could satisfy the standard of the law. Enter Jesus Christ, who becomes the fulfillment of that law on our behalf. And thank God for that. Okay, let's move on to verse 22. All right, but Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. All right, so here's what, um, here's a big part of what I want to get to today. Um, Just continuing this idea of that the law is critical and important in this story of Jesus. Um, The law was part of, of God's good news. That might seem crazy. If God gives us a law that we could never live up to and therefore we have to die because of that, then how could that be part of good news? That's bad news. That's death. But no, when we look at this whole thing in the context of God's love-filled promise We see that the law was part of God's good news. So look, outside of the love-filled context of the promise it was given in the law was our curse. And it is true. Outside of the love-filled promise of God to be our God and uh, and, and that we would be his people, outside of that love-filled context of that promise, the law is a curse. It is the standard we don't live up to, and therefore it's what we die to. Um... But in the love-saturated context of the promise, the love's fulfillment, the law's fulfillment through Jesus became our blessing. Okay, so here's, here's the conspiracy in this. I love it because I think when Satan saw that, that God handed this law to his people, I think Satan was very pleased with that. I think he was very happy about that because he saw, oh, I see, okay, that, 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 that. Oh yeah, they're never, ever, ever gonna live up to that. It's not happening. I have, every one of these people are mine now because they can't live up to that law and that standard. They're gonna die and they're mine now. I think Satan was pleased when God gave this law because to him, outside of this love-filled context of the promise, that law meant death for everyone. But I think the conspiracy of it is that inside the context of this love-saturated promise of God fulfilled through Jesus, the law becomes good news for us. And what do I mean by that? The law was a means for us to die and to be reborn. So the point of the law was to fulfill it. Okay, that when, when God gave the law, the point was to fulfill the law. Live up to the standard, do these things, maintain relationship. But the greater point of the law was that Jesus was going to fulfill it for us. And so I have to think that when God gave that law, he gave it with Jesus in mind. He had the end in mind, and he knew that this law was going to bring us life, not because we could live up to it and live in it, but because we couldn't, and we would die to it. And in dying to the law, we come alive in Jesus Christ. That's the conspiracy of this whole thing. It's the redemption of the law in us. Jesus fulfilled it and became it for us, and we now have the Spirit of God in us. So Jesus fulfills the law for us. And I think when we see it that way, we see that love is at the center of the law. 
not earning, not doing, not good merit. Love is at the center of the law. I think we see this too. Jesus and Paul and Timothy all made it a point at one point to say that you can sum up the wholeness of the law by love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your God with all your heart and your soul, your mind, your strength. Love, it's love that is at the center of this law. Um, look, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, I've kept all these commands. What must I do to, keep, to, to gain eternal life? Which he definitely never kept them all. But for some reason in his mind, he thought he had, right? So he's like, I have all this stuff. I've done all these things. What else must I do, Jesus, to have eternal life? And you know what Jesus says? Sell all of that and give it to the poor. That sums up the laws. Okay, you've kept these commands. You really want to get the heart of the law? Give all that you have to the poor. Love love, love, and come and follow me. The center of the law is love. Um, when, I, when they said um, the law can be summed up in these words, you know, to love and to love um, your God, love, your, love one another, love your neighbors yourself. Um, I think they meant it two ways. First, that the entirety of holiness can be summed up in love. And I think the second thing is that they, the, the fulfillment of the law was a person, Jesus, who is love. So Jesus, the epitome of love, God is love, and he became flesh, and he fulfilled the law. So if love was intended in love, and the center of the law was love, then it was a person of love that came and fulfilled it. Love itself came and fulfilled the law. Um. So we must see that the same loving God who gave us Jesus also gave us the law. And I think this is so important because if we don't, I think we can easily disconnect, disconnect faith in Christ from obedience to the commands of God. If I have an unhealthy relationship with the law, I will easily disconnect faith in Jesus. That is true. God gave me love and I only receive that promise by faith but I can easily disconnect that from obedience to the will of God, from surrender to God's will. And I think we have to understand that the law itself is God's love. So the last thing um, for us today is just to dive into that a little bit more. Um, the promise is received by faith and genuine faith produces fruit. So I wanna jump back to Abraham for a minute. Um, so God gave Abraham this promise Look up to the sky. Can you even count the stars? As many stars as you see as as many descendants as I'm going to give you. And keep in mind, Abraham and his wife had been trying for years to have children and were unable. So not only the, the idea of having millions of offspring, that's crazy to anyone, but to someone who had never given birth to a child, that's outrageous. Makes no sense. That was God's promise. And I, not by the way, you'll have those offspring and I will be their God for all generations to come. And then it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So as we've been, the promise is received by faith alone. Abraham simply believed it and it was credited as righteousness. When we receive Jesus by faith, it is credited as righteousness. We are righteous before him. Genuine faith, the kind of faith that receives the promise of God, 
the kind of faith that counts as righteous in this conspiracy of God's love, genuine faith produces fruit. There's a passage in the Bible um, it says, faith without works is dead. I think Paul also said that in another one of his letters. Faith without works is dead. So here's what I want to see. There is joy in loving the commands of God just as we love his face. And if I can be honest, I think we're a people right now, we're a body of Christ who love the face of God. We love to stare into his eyes. We love to worship in his manifest presence. We love to soak in God's presence. We love to to be face to face with our beautiful father. And I can honestly say that is a rare gift in the church of God. It is something beautiful that he has given to us. It is not to be discounted. It is not to be undervalued. It is beautiful. And honestly, it's where the obedience even comes from. Because if you don't have that, then it's just striving. Um, But God has given that to us. But I think he also wants to give us the next, like, as we, as we step into that, and as we see his face, and as we look at him, and as we gaze into his eyes, and as we are transformed in, his, in the moment of his presence, he wants to give us the kind of faith to step into the obedience to his will, and to live a surrendered life to God. And that doesn't receive the promise, but I believe that it partners with God to produce the fruit of the promise, right? Like, if God promises to give abundant life, right, and I love God, but I, like, there's just not much in my life that looks like God, and I kind of still just do what I want, and I make my own decisions. I think you can all agree with me. If we make enough of our own decisions, we end up in a bad place, right? <laughs> because we aren't, we aren't holy. We don't, stand, we don't live up to that standard of holiness, and holiness is goodness. Um, but if we make enough of our own decisions, we end up in a bad place. Um, but, well, let me move on from there. <laughs> um, All right, there is joy in loving the commands of God just as we love his face. I want to look at this passage from David in Psalm 119. Could you go to that, Letha? Okay. This is David who lived in the Old Covenant. David was not alive when Jesus came to earth. Um, But David, um, the Bible establishes David as someone who was after God's own heart. So David had an intimate relationship with the Lord. And, um, and so here we see him um, pouring out his heart in a, in a poem. Blessed are those, this is going to be a few slides, but it's really important. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, whose walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You lay down commands that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways are steadfast in keeping your commands. I praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to the Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your commands and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Be good to your servant while I live that I may obey your word. 
Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your commands at all times. If we consider David, who lived before the fulfillment of the law, under the conditions of the old covenant, if we, do you see the love in that? It's intimate. It says, he said, can you go back to the last slide? With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. That's an intimate thing. There's intimacy in David's love for God's commands. Why? Because he knows that behind these commands is the love of God. And he knows it's for him. There is a beauty in not just loving Jesus, but loving the commands of Jesus. Jesus said it. He said, if you love me, then obey my commands. And I think a lot of times in church, we skip the love me part and we just get to the obey my commands, right? If you want to have peace, you got to do these things. Go, here's five things. Go practice that and you'll have peace. Go obey God's commands. No, 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 no. We're not missing that this behind all of this is God's love. But he says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And it's natural. Genuine faith produces fruit. There is joy in loving the commands of God, just as we love his face. And if this seems odd or it's not a part of your current experience, um, which I think for all of us, there are plenty of times where we don't focus enough on loving the commands of God. Um, I think it's, it's probably very rare if your discipleship through all of your years uh, pointed you to that. It's, it's, so it, it might not be natural for us, um, but we can let communion with the Father wash away that bent towards striving that we carry, and we can go into like loving God, loving his voice, loving his commands. And we get to encounter the pleasure of obeying a father who unquestionably loves and protects us. Think about how that turns around the idea of obedience, right? If it's obedience out of fear of something or obedience out of, um, you know, obligation, then it's just doing the task because we have to. But if we know that our Father loves us and he protects us, he's the one who takes care of me, every need. He's the one who speaks these, these, these words of love to me. He's the one who gives hope when I'm feeling hopeless and peace when I feel uh, like there's no peace anywhere else. If I know that that is who he is, then I want to obey him. I get to encounter the pleasure of obeying that kind of love. It just turns the whole thing around. Um, and if we miss out on that, then not only do we miss out on, on obeying God, but we miss out on the pleasure of obeying God. Um, and so if you believe God is who he says that he is, and therefore you are who he says that you are, then the only response is obedience to his will. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, credited to him as righteousness. And then a few chapters later, we see where, I don't know if you know this story, but God calls to Abraham, tells him to take his only son, Isaac. And just to, to add on to this. So again, Abraham was not able to have children for years. And it sounded like he had given up on that dream. And then through God's grace, he gave him, as he fulfilled this promise in him, he gave him a son. And he tells him to take Isaac, his only son, and to go up onto a mountain and to sacrifice Isaac to the Lord, to slay him on an altar. 
God told him to do that. And Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham takes Isaac and the wood that's needed for the sacrifice and he goes up onto a mountain and he builds the altar and he lays his son on this altar. He picks up a knife and as he goes to slay his only son, whom he deeply loves, he hears the voice of God say, stop, hold on, do not lay a hand on Isaac. And then God says, look in the thicket there, you'll see a ram, sacrifice that instead. And we could go into a whole thing, but that ram is Jesus. But Abraham believed God and he was willing to do the craziest thing because he knew that God was gonna fulfill his promise in him. Nothing else could cause Abraham to lay his son on an altar and pick up a knife. You can't tell me that like some distant idea of a God could cause you to do that. And if it does, then you've just gone insane from fear. Nothing else could lead you to do something like that. But Abraham believed God. That's the power of faith in our lives. Whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. So as we close, um, Darren, would you play some keys, bro? Thank you. Um, Let's just close our eyes if you cross this place. And I just want to give just some time to consider God's love in this. Um, and to see what he might be speaking to us. Who's closing the service, by the way? Okay, I'm going to pass it off to you in a minute. Um, yeah, let's just take a moment, um, just let a daring play, and uh, just consider what God might be speaking to in this moment. Maybe, maybe you have a complicated relationship with the idea of the law. Maybe you come from a religious environment where it felt like it was just the law that you were being given and it wasn't God's deep love. It wasn't the promise. Um, And so maybe that causes you to feel distant from that idea of God, from that part of God. Um, Makes you like cringe a little bit when you think about like God and the law as opposed to just the grace of Jesus. Um, If that's the case, then I think just sit with it and just invite God into it in this moment. Maybe you are just feeling like pretty, like maybe you're in that place I was talking about. You make enough of those own decisions and you're in a bad place. Maybe that's you right now. And you recognize like enough of your own decisions um, following your own way has just left you in a bad place. And you just need Jesus to wash through that, wash it clean um, and give you a fresh start in him. Um, Again, just invite him into that. Um, or anything else, whatever God might be speaking. Um, just want to give him some time and then key whenever, you know, you want to come up and close, it would be great. So, so Jesus, just come now. Thank you for your deep love for us. I thank you that this whole thing isn't conditional on our ability to be self-righteous and holy. I thank you that the good news is the good news. 
and it is established and founded on your promise to us to never leave, to never forsake. Your promise that was established in the law and was fulfilled through Jesus once and for all, that we now have life in you. And if you want to receive Jesus as your Savior, if you want to receive that promise by faith and believe God and to follow in his ways all of your life, then he's here and there's space to invite him into that too. So God, just come now. Just invite you by by the power of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. He's still speaking, well, we're gonna let him keep speaking. I look at you guys I feel um, the Lord's delight for you and that he just calls you his precious ones and that you were so worth dying for you were so worth calling back he doesn't have to do it again but if he did he would for you bless that Lord over these your precious ones these are the offspring that you had in mind when you looked at the stars these are the ones for whom your heart longed to commune with there's no question in your heart about how you feel towards them Their sin never put any questions in your heart about them. Their confusion doesn't confuse you. You're sure about your feelings concerning them. You love them and they are yours. I don't know if I can do this, but I rededicate them to you, Lord. They belong to you. Um, I want to offer you two things. Uh, First is the gift of repentance. I've heard it said that sin is not believing God. If, If righteousness is credited to him as believing God, then sin would be not doing that. Um, and that's, that leads us to the dark places that Jake was talking about. But the gift that Jesus has given us is repentance. 
It's the ability to say, I did not believe you there. And I lived like that. But I don't want that anymore. Forgive me for that. That's the first part. And then repentance is to turn. Help me turn. My feet don't do that on their own. Help me. And he's good. He'll help you. No shame. He'll just help you. So that's the first gift I want to offer you. Um, And the second one is encouragement. I paused a moment to let him keep speaking because Jake was praying that he would speak. And we believe he hears us when he prays. So I was letting him speak. Um, Believe him. Whatever he said to you then, believe him. He's not a liar. He's not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he changes his mind. Believe him. You can trust him. And he's not too good to show you that he's trustworthy. So I'm going to ask the prayer ministers to come and I'm just going to pray that the Lord would illuminate to you which one of those two you should do or if there's some other third thing. He can talk to you. And prayer ministers, you can come up. God, you are good and holy. And we bless you and we love you. We love your voice. It's rushing waters. I pray, God, that you'd meet us, your sheep, and you'd lead us wherever you're taking us. You'd lead us into repentance. You'd lead us into right living and holiness. You'd lead us into receiving the fullness of the promise, Lord. And whatever you need to align, I just declare that it would be aligned now in Jesus' name. Realign us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys are free to enjoy the rest of your evening, afternoon. Meet somebody if you haven't yet. And the prayer ministers are here to pray for you. We love you.